Hello, my fellow Bitcoiners, meet the status credit card. Earn unlimited 2% cash back or Bitcoin rewards on every purchase. With no annual fee, no foreign transaction fees, and no fees to buy Bitcoin at the market rate. This card comes with status money's premium benefits to help you manage your money, including a net worth and spending tracker, peer comparisons, and the option to video chat with a financial coach. Download the Status Money app or visit statusmoney.com slash card. Get the status credit card, go to statusmoney.com forward slash card. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Thanks everyone for joining us at Cosmic Bitcoin. This is a conversation and this series overall is just to kind of get away from some of the number go up, number go down obsession that a lot of people, you know, especially on Bitcoin Twitter have. While that can be fun, I think it's always a good opportunity to look at kind of the bigger picture implications of Bitcoin as this decentralized energy-based money and what this can mean for humanity. Um, There's so many great rabbit holes out there. It's always really intellectually stimulating and can also lead to unexpected places. Uh, many people in the space have thought long and hard about Bitcoin as this revolution in money. And, you know, who knows how long this technology could last? You know, it could last as long as we can keep the wheels turning on civilization and who knows where it'll take us. But I'm hoping that Dhruv can provide some color and uh, take us on a journey to see what the far future of Bitcoin and proof of work technology might hold. So yeah, and I will also say that this is made possible by Bitcoin Magazine and the Bitcoin Conference. Everyone, if you want to hear more conversations like this, we're trying to spin up a cosmic Bitcoin panel at Bitcoin 2023 in Miami, May 18th through the 20th. Um, you can save 10% on your tickets with code COSMIC, and you can also get 10% off everything in the Bitcoin Magazine store with code COSMIC. It's going to be a blast out of Miami, and I really look forward to meeting all of y'all there. It's going to be a really high signal event. You know, in this bear market, I think a lot of the noise is out of way. So I think we're going to be able to really see, you know, where this industry is going to be going in the future. And I think it's going to be a great event with so many awesome Bitcoiners. I'll just give a bit of Drew's background. So Drew is the co-founder and CSO of Unchained Capital. They use a collaborative multi-sig custody approach for providing Bitcoin financial services. And they're some of the best in the space. I highly recommend everyone check them out. And Drew was also a co-founder and chief science officer for InfoChimps. And also before that, Drew was pursuing his PhD at the UT Austin Center for Nonlinear Dynamics. Drew studied the statistical physics of large networks and their applications for real-world systems, including the human brain, social networks, school systems, and glass forming. So Drew has a very interdisciplinary background. He brings a lot to the space, and he applies a lot of his understanding of cosmology and physics to understand the complexities of Bitcoin adoption and what that means from an evolutionary standpoint in terms of humanity's ability to harness and utilize energy in its environment. Nice to speak to you all. Thanks for inviting me. Of course, man. We're really excited to have you here on Cosmic Bitcoin. So I just gave the audience a bit of an introduction, talked about your work with Unchained as well mm -hmm. as InfoChimps. And then also you pursued your PhD at the UT Austin Center for Nonlinear Dynamics. And first of all, I would just be curious, you know, what that was like, what interested you about physics specifically and kind of what your work was like there. And then we can kind of move on from there and dive into your work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, briefly, I was interested in physics always growing up as a little kid. I think physics was always portrayed to me as like the search for mysterious truths as kind of the bottom of nature. You had to be really smart and accomplished to succeed. And it was very attractive. I read a lot of physics books growing up and idolized a lot of physicists. I wound up studying physics in college and went to a PhD program at the University of Texas in Austin, indeed, at the Center for Nonlinear Dynamics. I think by this point, I was excited about not just like particles and, and super theoretical physics, but also physics where it intersected with like the practical world. Like I always found it really remarkable that, uh, you know, Heisenberg, like one of the creators of quantum mechanics, like talked about turbulence as being, 
you know, like of, a, of an air current or a stream or a flag waving in the breeze as being a sort of unsolvable problem. And it always struck me as like, that's so interesting how the ostensibly furthest along most ambitious parts of physics still can't contend with basic phenomena that you would see in the kitchen. And so that intersection of theoretical things with the real world where numbers get large, statistical mechanics, that was what was exciting to me. And it was a good basis too, because while I was in graduate school, I wound up dropping out for reasons, but I spent a lot of time learning to program around large data sets. The group that I was in spent a lot of time bringing physics to try to analyze real world phenomenon in unusual and novel ways. So it was great training on how to think laterally and apply physics principles to systems that weren't traditionally thought of by physicists, everything from school systems to economies and social networks, things of this. I love programming. I discovered that when I was there. Ultimately, this helped me start InfoShims with Joe, my co-founder at Unchained as well. It was a business that focused on data and computing, stuff online. We did all right. We sold a business. I found myself learning about Bitcoin. And I think because of that business, InfoChimps, and because of my work as a physicist, I was well prepared. Like I sort of could see, you know, as a physicist, space and time are, are you know, very malleable concepts and mysterious ones. Distributed systems are are also mysterious money, which I didn't know much about. It seemed reasonable. Like it could be mysterious. And here was this Bitcoin thing, combining all these things together, just seemed very interesting. So I was very much bitten when I first learned about Bitcoin, invested a little bit, tracked it, decided to start Unchained with Joe because we were both just at that point, completely fascinated and down the rabbit hole. And I'm very glad I did. I think as a physicist, it's been fun to think about Bitcoin, which it turns out does have deep connections, I think to space and time and energy and all sorts of concepts that physicists have something to say about. And I think part of my work in the Bitcoin astronomy series is exploring some of the constraints and edge behavior of Bitcoin and blockchains and at, at far-flung future situations, very impractical conversations for today in some ways, but I do think in other ways they help illuminate concerns that we would have even today. So I hope that if speculation isn't your thing, at least using that speculation as a lens to evaluate certain questions you might have about Bitcoin or altcoins or other things today could be a benefit of reading this series anyway. Yeah, totally. And that's, I think, one of the reasons I started this show along with CK, who is not here this week. But yeah, we're really interested in, you know, things that we can't necessarily know, but trying to chart this path into the future to understand what might be just around the corner. What are these possibilities that might be lying ahead for the future of civilization using this technology? And I would just be curious, like, it seems as though you took some inspiration from science fiction. And I'd be curious, you know, are there any particular authors or books that really inspired you maybe when you were a kid or as you were researching this piece? And also, you know, what role do you think science fiction can play in helping us understand technology and if any? Yeah, I don't know. Science fiction is, I suppose taste has a lot to do with it, right? I think really good science fiction, which I think remains really good, even if technology changes, is really good because it's talking about some essential truths. It's talking about like, I don't know, the the value of ceding power and control to machines or automated systems, right? Common themes in, in science fiction or the consequences of AI or other kind of ideas like that or space travel even. So the best science fiction really does teach us about, I think, humankind and I think gives us targets, things to avoid and things to build. I think it's cool when we develop AI and it solves problems for us and makes our lives better. It's also predictable, unfortunately, when we deploy it to do exactly the thing that we knew we shouldn't do from all those movies and TV shows about AI that we created in the past, right? So in terms of science fiction that really affected me, I think I've read, I've read a lot of science fiction in broad categories and my taste has certainly changed as I've grown older. All the classics, of course, when I was a kid, my dad had a great science fiction library from like the 70s and 80s that I mined when I was a teenager living with my parents. But let's say, especially as it relates to Bitcoin astronomy, like there's a lot of, I would like to believe that I channeled some cool sci-fi instincts into writing these articles. They're certainly not science fiction. They're not fiction. They're not well, they don't, they have no plot. They are something like a future history, but they're a speculative one. Um, but I do think I drew a lot on science fiction. One area that in writing this series that I found super interesting, and now I'm actually very attuned to new science fiction that I learn about that is in this area is the role of money in science fiction. That so much of the science fiction I'm realizing that I have read in my life never really deeply evolved the concept of money in the society in which it, in which it's writing about like maybe the society is post scarcity and there is no money and okay i guess that's innovative to a degree but a lot of times society seems to have money and it works more or less the way that our money works it's just called something else i don't know solaris whatever 
international galaxy credits, who knows? And I had never thought about that either because I don't know very much about money. And so the idea that money could work differently or that money would have something to do with the scale of civilizations or whatever, and that even would be interesting, it's not an idea that I had. I was familiar with from a lot of the science fiction I read. I have now read a few series that really do kind of, in some ways, put money at the forefront of it. And not in the sense of like money being a MacGuffin for a character's motivations, or there's some big heist that would make the character rich and so they get money. That's not what I mean. I more mean money as a structural plot device or as an important aspect of the society that the that the book is exploring or whatever, but it does tend to be rare. So I think maybe that's part of what I enjoyed about writing Bitcoin astronomy is that I got to as a big avid reader of science fiction and as a person who's probably too lazy to ever really write a science fiction novel myself, I got to write these shorter but still annoyingly long articles about what money would look like under certain hypotheses and how that might affect people who write in traditional science fiction contexts like space and aliens and whatnot. And yeah, it led to a lot of wild speculation. Yeah, well, I had a ton of fun reading all of these pieces. I, it was just such a, you know, a, a trek down the rabbit hole trying to follow all of these different threads, but well worth everyone's time, I'll say. You did a great job. And just real briefly on, on the topic of money in science fiction, I always felt that Dune was at its core a Bitcoin series. Um, using the spice <laughs> as the, you know, the way of settling between individuals, you know, perhaps mm -hmm. giving them a view into the future, which is hopefully what we can do with money as we try to plan in the longest term capacity possible. But I might just be me, you know, seeing everything as a nail to hit with my Bitcoin hammer. Yeah, Dune's definitely on the boundary, right? Like the spice, is the spice money or is it a commodity? I think Dune at least talks about how important economics are to to the way society functions, even in a galactic empire. So I think that's interesting. I'm trying to remember now, I'm revealing how little of Dune, the series I've actually ever read. But I recall like the like company shares and there's a few other important economic mm. constructs. I don't know how, how much more fleshed out those get in a longer series. I'm missing my good friend Buck here, who's my constant Dune expert on my side. But uh, yeah, I, so I do think Frank Herbert, you're right. At least in as much as Bitcoin is about changes in money, changing society, or money being this transparent everywhere thing that nonetheless is everywhere in society. I feel like Dune does does highlight that. But yeah, but few books are actually about like the way the money would have to operate out of necessity in a science fiction context. I've only seen a few that explicitly even, I think there's one famous one, Neptune's Brood, that came out a few years ago by I think Charlie Strauss. I own it, but I've never read it. And it's ostensibly about blockchains and space and other cool ideas. So mm -hmm. I would recommend some folks maybe check that one out for another perspective. Awesome. Yeah, great shout. Cool. So I guess would love to just try and start digging into, I guess we'll begin with part one, your Bitcoin astronomy piece, the law of hash horizons. And I'll just give a quick definition for everyone. And you write, given constant hash rate as a miner moves away from the center of hash of a blockchain, the number of blocks won by that miner statistically trends towards zero. Um, and you talk a lot about kind of the role that the propagation of light and through space over a certain amount of time plays in the ability for miners to interact with the network. And you kind of begin with talking about hyper-Bitcoinization on Earth. And ultimately, as we begin to travel outwards, we talk about potentially colonizing Mars, what that might look like as Martians themselves begin to interact with the Bitcoin blockchain in space. So yeah, I would just be curious if you could kind of unpack that a little bit and just talk about this principle of as we move away from the center of hash, how the kind of incentives for participating in the network will change. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I, in the article, talk a little bit about how Bitcoin certainly can be used in a place like Mars, even if Bitcoin was born and chiefly mined, it turns out, here on Earth. Using Bitcoin really just requires, you know, having keys and being able to transmit transactions to mining pools, etc. So certainly it can be used and held. And the basis of a Martian economy, even, you know, if it's getting started or whatever. This is all, of course, assuming the conceit that perhaps in this audience is shared, that hyper-Bitcoinization and things like have already kind of occurred on Earth, right? So we're already in a universe where humanity just uses Bitcoin as our global reserve currency for everything. So when humanity gets to Mars, presumably that will continue because you can still use Bitcoin from Mars. But as the Martian colony kind of grows, I conjecture that there will become this like political identity, kind of patriotism, jingoistic need for Martians to start their own Bitcoin-like currency. And in the article, I call it Muskcoin for obvious reasons. And I talk about the reasons why it actually kind of makes sense that they would want to do this and why they'll ultimately succeed. And the why around this is simply the idea that Bitcoin mining in particular, like Bitcoin is all about, I think, embracing constraints. I've talked about that in a lot of other contexts, but Bitcoin mining in, in particular embraces the constraint that energy is scarce, that cryptography is not something you can just 
clever your way around and that public private keys and and excuse me hashing is a is an is a is an algorithm you can't game so you put all these things together these are constraints right and it means that proof of work is a very strong protection on consensus in bitcoin and that's really important but because of those physical constraints like involving energy and computation bitcoin connects deeply to the physical world because of the 10 minute time period that the mining process tries to anchor around, Bitcoin connects very deeply to notions of time and space, therefore, right? In particular, in this crazy context that we're considering between Earth and Mars, there is a significant light lag between those two planets. Like, I will forget the numbers now, but it's many minutes. And I think it can get as high as like 40 minutes for a round trip signal between Earth and Mars at their furthest points. These numbers are so large that it becomes challenging for the algorithm of mining to work in the same way that you might expect if you're a miner on Mars versus if you're a miner on Earth. And it turns out to have something to do with this concept of, well, where are the most miners at a given moment in time? I call that the notion of center of hash. Just like some distribution of matter in the universe can have a center of mass, you know, where you would wear balance if you held it above your fingertip. Similarly, you can imagine in three dimensions, there's a certain amount of Bitcoin hash rate at a particular location in space. You know, right now, obviously, all Bitcoin hash rate is sitting at the surface of the Earth in various locations. But in the future, it might be in orbit. It might be in nearby heavenly bodies. Who knows? Wherever it is, there's a notion of the center, the average location of that center of hash. And it turns out, like, the further you get from that point in space, the more kind of lag you experience. It's, imagine, like, being in a video game, a multiplayer game, and having really bad lag. You're kind of always behind the latest action. And in Bitcoin, and specifically in Bitcoin mining, that means you, you kind of operate at a disadvantage with respect to new blocks and consensus changes that propagate out through the nest of the network. In the extreme case where most Bitcoin mining is happening on Earth and your person in, on Mars who wants to start Bitcoin mining, you'll have a really inefficient time of doing it. Technically, your hash rate will be exponentially suppressed by some factor of your distance back to Earth where most of the mining is. So basically, this means that the Bitcoin mining industry will never get started on Mars because of this fundamental constraint. Bitcoin is related to energy and space and time, and you can't get around those things. I'm not the first person to elucidate this constraint. Clark Moody, in a very prescient article about Bitcoin in space, talked about this. I kind of did some calculations and some further work to kind of confirm it and convince myself of it. And then I kind of ran with this idea. And I think where Clark said, hey, that's the end of the story. Bitcoiners on Mars won't be able to mine. Too bad. I sort of took it a step further and said, well, I think that means they're going to want to launch their own coin. And the reason for that is not only is it cool to be able to say you're mining on your own coin, but as is already, I think, happening here on Earth today, Bitcoin mining has deep connections into the energy industry. And Bitcoin can act like a economic battery for excess energy at certain times and release it back to the grid at other times. It's a very interesting tool to perhaps optimize energy infrastructure for society. And it have many other follow-on good effects as well. So mining is not something that you just do because it helps keep the money supply going. It's an important part of another important foundational energy or industry, which is energy. Maybe Martians see and want this, so they want to be able to mine. They can't mine Bitcoin because of the issues around the center of hash that I raised. They're going to want to start their own coin, Musk coin. And then I talk about how this is a cool patriotism moment for Mars. It's like that revolution. It's not a typical revolution. It's an information and consensus-based revolution to use a different money instead of another one. And it's interesting because that law of hash horizons concept really cuts both ways. If the Martians were very far away from Earth where most Bitcoin mining is happening and that put them at a disadvantage, then folks on Earth are very far away from Mars. And they are at a disadvantage with respect to hash rate applied to Musk coin. And so the Martians actually can defend themselves to a degree against what I call hash aggression or hash war from parties on Earth that maybe don't want the Martian economy to switch over to using Musk coin for whatever reasons that they might have. So I kind of frame this as an interesting like revolution story. That idea is also not very new. I think the, the idea of Mars revolting in some way against Earth is a very common trope in science fiction. It's one that I really love. So here I get to take my own take on it. It doesn't happen because of you know, Kotaku or whatever in the sewers. It happens because of a new kind of mind, Musk coin. Yeah, fascinating. I, I love the, I think in the article you change Margaret Thatcher's name. I, I might get this wrong, but it might have been like Margaret Hasher or something of the sort, but you dramatize things a little bit there and I did enjoy that. Hey, plebs. Today's podcast is brought to you by Crowd Health. Open enrollment is upon us. What if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you could invest in Bitcoin instead? 
With CrowdHealth, you can put aside money for health expenses in your own account and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up, you get the upside, not the big insurance companies. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. Choose your doctors and hold 75% of the funds in Bitcoin. If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned capital. Go to crowdhealthbtc.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin right now through the end of the year. You can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to crowdhealthbtc.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. That's crowdhealthbtc.com, promo code BTCMAG. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It is a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. In that first piece, you also make some allusions to Brandon Quittam's work, Coin as a Pioneer Species. And we had Brandon on the podcast for our inaugural episode. But something you write is that blockchains will seep across the solar system, attracted by energy and resources. Flocks of mobile transport or miners will migrate along among the worlds, looking for the best way to arbitrage fuel and time across interplanetary hash rates and shipping markets. Humanity will grow like a fungus or slime mold, comfortable in our warm and dark corner of the Milky Way. So yeah, I kind of wanted to just take this chance to kind of take the discussion beyond this Earth versus Mars dynamic. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to pick your brain on what that incentive structure is like. Like, why would people venture out further and further away from the currently existing blockchains? You know, you mentioned, you know, Alpha Centauri as a place people would go because it is far away would be the rationale. So I would uh, love if you could unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I liked that. And in that paragraph that you quoted, I'm very much just riffing on Brandon's work. Brandon's awesome for many reasons. And one of them is indeed the work that he's put out talking about Bitcoin as a kind of life form, as a pioneer species, like winning niches and making them more habitable for other things. I, I very much think that's a great analogy for it. I think what's so cool about Bitcoin is you can analogize it to a fungus or biological creature. You can talk about it from a physics perspective. You can talk about it from a market perspective and economics. It, you're all correct. So I think it's helpful to have multiple viewpoints on it and they reinforce Bitcoin's self-sustaining, you know, equilibrium finding nature. So yeah, I very much endorse Brandon's work. If you haven't read it, check it out. Trying to think about going beyond Earth and the solar system and so on. I think that's what's so cool about analogies to life is that there is this kind of taken for granted notion, ultimately driven, of course, by the theory of evolution and the propagation of the pattern for self-sustainment, but like life has a will to survive and grow. Right. That's, we sort of take that for granted. Of course it does. That's how we all feel. And so it's Bitcoin seems to behave that way sometimes. So analogizing it to life is really productive. It helps capture parts of that analogy that are that bear fruit, so to speak. But uh, one of the things that we have to truthfully ask is like, what is the equivalent force in the real world that causes Bitcoin to be so energy seeking? Bitcoin's not alive, at least in the more traditional narrow definition of what it means to be alive. It does consume energy, but I think most scientists would say it's not alive in the way that we typically mean. Yet it behaves as though it's alive because it has these drives to go out and acquire new energy. And in my work, I'm trying to explore where, how that intersects with the social dynamics of human exploration and why that might make sense. So ultimately that quote of, you know, I'm playing on Mallory's words here, like why explore Alpha Satorio? Oh, it's because it's far away. Its distance means that you get away from existing hash horizons of existing human economic spheres. And that is exciting potentially for the first people who get there, because if you go to a place, you're the first person's there. And if later many new humans arrive there, 
whether you created those humans through your own colony or whether you convince more people to come join you at this neighboring star system or whatever it is, if you create the currency of that world, you can sustain it and protect it through these hash horizon concepts. And maybe in the future, this is like considered one of the most profitable you know, things a person can do is to launch a new colony that succeeds, be a founder, create the money supply, have a good amount of that money supply as early Bitcoiners do here on or did here on Earth. So I just think that's an interesting social motivation for why people should choose to expand far away. And I think that's an important question to ask because maybe to some people like space nerds, it's obvious why humanity should choose to expand out into the world around us, into the broader outer space and interstellar neighborhood around us because it's fucking cool. That's the reason to do it. But I think realistically, we have to ask ourselves, it's kind of a Bezos versus Musk if you want to believe in history as the battle of billionaires, right? I think there's this contention that Elon wants to settle planets and continue exploring. And uh, Jeff Bezos believes that we'd be better off just building space habitats around the earth. There is a huge amount of matter in our solar system, enough to, you know, if you credit some big Kardashian of ideas like disassembling planets and the asteroid belt and so on, there's enough matter to build, you know, not like many earths or tens of earths, but like trillions of earths worth of living room here just in the solar system. And to power it all through water and fusion and to create many, you know, environments, habitats for ourselves. We don't need to a priori move far away and explore other stars in order to grow our population and energy usage by huge orders of magnitude beyond where we are today. So I think it's important that we posit if we believe or want some kind of future where humanity doesn't just stay around our own star system and continue to grow and live in space habitats and consume more. Maybe that is part of what we do, but if there's some aspect, an element of our species that chooses to go out and explore and build colonies and start and expand and our footprint as a life form, as a slime mold, right? Amongst the galaxy, what motivated those persons to do it? it? The answer is not, we ran out of resources here at home because that won't happen. There are so many resources that that is unrealistic. It feels like it's either we're fleeing some incredible, you know, fuck up that humanity did, like rogue AIs or aggression or war, and maybe that is the answer, or there's some reason why going far away is important. And I'm trying to articulate, well, maybe this is the reason, that if you get far away from society, that is the way to create opportunity for yourself economically to build these new blockchains and found this new civilization. And that's what gets people excited to go there and overcome that need to just stay at home orbiting the same old star. Yeah, and it makes me think about, you know, we have decentralization of money in Bitcoin, and it almost seems like it's driving this imperative of decentralization in space of humanity, almost a way of like limiting our existential risk through this mechanism. And that might be a bit of a leap there, but it seems like a plausible scenario. That's kind of one of the higher order consequences of this as we scale is this. I mean, I personally just find myself interested in questions of existential risk, and it seems like this may be a mechanism for humanity as a collective organism to kind of hedge its bets in a way. Yeah, I think sometimes certainly endorse what you're saying about existential risk. And I get into that with higher order blockchains and some of the later work in part two and beyond in this series. But I think one thing to think about is we sometimes tend to believe as humans and as modern humans, especially that because we have civilization, we're somehow at the edge of history. And we don't imagine that there's so much future history that the universe in, in some models of reality has already experienced. It's hard to imagine like what the future version of our civilization, should it continue to survive and grow and spread, like what that might look like. I think what's cool about Brandon's work too is it starts to bring the conversation by framing Bitcoin and human expansion about life. I mean, connecting it with my own work around, you know, Bitcoin driving human expansion in, in, in space. I have to ask yourself, like, what is the, what is driving the acquisition of energy for this structure, right? Like, why does it want to expand? And I think that starts to bring it back to just thermodynamic ideas, which is, which are really simple ideas that things that grow <clears throat> and use energy <clears throat> generically will create entropy and in the world and the universe around them. Like part of the reason life is such a robust phenomenon, like something that established itself rather quickly in the history of the earth pretty much as soon as it cooled down and has persisted and survived all sorts of crazy disasters and evolved and used ever more energy as it has grown and occupied more and more niches in in, in broader and larger ecologies. The reason that happens is because thermodynamically it's advantageous, right? Life is creating more entropy, not less in aggregate. And that's what the second law of thermodynamics demands. So life is 
in some ways, fantastically unlikely. We struggle as humans to understand how it became, how it got started. But in the statistical whole, it's in some sense, the obvious thing that should happen, like where there are energy gradients, some process should arise in the universe to take advantage of those energy gradients and turn them into larger amounts of entropy. And that's thinking about life at the absolute largest scales. Again, I think it's cool to connect to Bitcoin and Brandon my, and Mai's work in this area and think about Bitcoin as one of the things that causes life at scale to spread from rock to rock and not just stay in one place and become kind of richer and fatter and stater. So I don't know, I really like that connection between thermodynamics, biology, the origin of life, mushrooms, Bitcoin, space travel. It's a fun area for a real science fiction author, I think, in which to play. Yeah, I totally agree. It seems like Bitcoin is certainly fertile ground for some of these explorations as you've undertaken, and I hope more do into the future. Um, and I kind of want to transition us a little bit further on and see your second piece where you talk about the hash exclusion principle, and that is part two. And you write, discrete physical and temporal scales provide hierarchical states for blockchains to occupy in order of increasing energy and distance from Earth. And you go on to talk about, like you mentioned, Kardashev scaling, different types of civilizations and how much energy they harness. And then you also talk about the potential decline and fall of what you refer to as the Terran Empire or, you know, the Earth civilization. So yeah, I would just be kind of curious if you could unpack that hash exclusion principle and then also maybe provide a definition of the poly exclusion principle for our audience wow okay i'll try to i'll try to remember and connect all that but you remind me if i get lost okay um, I'll, I'll I, I will say as a way of like preserving the overall narrative structure here i think in part two of the series which is what where what you're asking me to basically discuss here in a sense i'm trying to make a connection as an author i already knew what i wanted to write for part three and part two is very challenging for me to produce because I ultimately was really excited about the content of part three, but I needed to motivate why it was possible. Not to put the cart before the horse, but in part three, I'll make the claim that aliens have Bitcoin too, man. And essentially they want us to join their version of Bitcoin in some way. That's the pull. But in order for that to really make sense, you know, I got through in part one talking about how Bitcoin is very small in some way, at least on a solar system scale, like can't even reach Mars. And so the Martians will have their own coins. Like how could these faraway aliens and we ever really, you know, be part of each other's currency. At best, we could at great pain and length exchange transactions of each other's coins or something the way that Musk coin and Bitcoin on Mars and Earth respectively could do here in our solar system. But, but th there's a different way that could work. And that's what I explored in part two, again, chiefly because I wanted to motivate the discussion at an even larger scale in part three. But coming back to part two, this idea of the exclusion principle just the idea that I, just, I, again, had described in part one how Bitcoin sort of gets started on Earth and then eventually humans colonize Mars and they spin off a new blockchain there called Muskcoin in my, you know, speculations. Maybe that happens a few more times as humanity continues to explore the rest of the solar system and create meaningful colonies in other places. But eventually there, there's sort of a topology problem that winds up happening. The Expanse television show is a great, I think, example for this. They have a culture in that show called the Belters. They live on all the asteroid belts in the solar system, which kind of ring the planets between Mars and Jupiter. And there's another belt that's a little further out. It's very interesting to think about that mode of settlement, because unlike settling a planet, settling a belt means there's a bunch of human beings, potentially billions of human beings. I don't know how many Belters there are supposed to be in this TV show, but I think there's quite a few. They're no longer concentrated at one point in space like around a planet, which is a relatively small object as far as the overall distances in space are concerned. Instead, they're now spread out over the diameter of an orbit. So imagine that if you're a society of a few billion belters and you occupy the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, half of you are on one side of the belt at a given time, half of you are on the other side of the belt, presumably in your various small asteroid kind of habitats. So you're already kind of, you're, you're, even if you have the same population as a planet, it's not in one location within a light second or a fraction of a light second from each other, as we are here on Earth right now, you're instead spread across many tens of light minutes, potentially light hours or a light day, if you're talking about the largest asteroid and cometary belts that we have in the solar system. And so for a society like this, no what I call planetary blockchain like Bitcoin or Muskcoin, one that's designed to have a block time of a few minutes, no blockchain like that could ever be mined upon. You'll always be too far away even if you try to, like the Martians did on Muscoin in my speculations, create your own blockchain, you would have to create one with a block time of many 
minutes to hours to days in order to be able to capture everybody in your society of belters, so people all on the other, all the way on the other side of that asteroid belt that you all live in. And then I sort of started to think about this idea. It's like this is actually a really cool and powerful idea because a blockchain that is potentially let's take this all the way, a blockchain that's the size of a you know solar system, which is to say it's got a block time of a full day, you should be able to mine on this blockchain anywhere essentially in the solar system that human beings are likely to occupy. So everywhere out to the orbit of Neptune and beyond. So that's pretty exciting, but it's not just a giant blockchain with a big block time. It creates other differences. The energy scale of this blockchain is going to, or maybe before we get to that, the time scale, right, that winds up happening here. I think I'm forgetting the math here. I'll just approximate it. You can see it in the article. But if you just scale up the numbers naively, your 10 minute Bitcoin block time becomes a one day block time or a 30 day block time or something like that, depending on how you set it up, you're talking about hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands of years to produce you know, the equivalent of 210,000 Bitcoin. I call this blockchain Solcoin because it's meant to be the entire economic activity around the our star, the sun known as Sol. So just to distinguish it from these other smaller Bitcoin and Musk coin-like planetary chains around Earth and Mars, I call it Solcoin. But these Solcoin blocks, in order to create the Solcoin supply, it would take 100,000 years. That's so much longer than the 100 years or so it would take to create Bitcoin supply. The energy that's used to create these blocks would necessarily have to be orders of magnitude higher than the energy or hash rate or difficulty that's going into Bitcoin and Muscoin blocks at the equivalent time for reasons of stability of the network, which I kind of get into. So these larger chains that I'm suggesting, this notion of a Solcoin that's something the size of the solar system, it's not just because we want everybody to use the same money. It's because it actually solves a bunch of problems that a society of that scale would have when they build money of that scale. So for example, the notions of even visiting other stars or creating megastructure-like projects or any of the ideas that we commonly associate to more advanced civilizations, the kinds of things that some of us would have a humanity aspire to be able to build, those require amounts of energy which dwarf the amount of energy that you're ever going to have near a planet, much less be able to put into a blockchain like Bitcoin's. You need a kind of money which can defend itself against energy on those scales. And you can't just abandon Bitcoin and planetary monies. You still need them for daily transactions and the systems and economies that route through them. But you start to develop <clears throat> the super long time scale, super high energy, super high value, solar system wide currency. I kind of go into motivate a bunch of reasons why that makes sense. And then, of course, to try to connect this to the third part in our limited time here, I make the claim that this pattern can repeat itself. That if we have an idea of planetary blockchains within quote unquote stellar blockchains like Solcoin that work at much longer, astronomically larger and longer time scales that are, or I should have mentioned this earlier, that are more appropriate for, you know, Kardashev scale civilizations that are beyond where we're at right now. There's a link between Kardashev scale civilizations and the kind of money they would use here, right? Is what I'm asserting. You can imagine that same pattern occurring at a larger scale, right? That maybe there's a blockchain that's the size of a small part of the galaxy that can include civilizations from many star systems. And then that becomes the setting for part three of the article eventually. Awesome. Thank you for that. That was very thorough. And yeah, I mean, I personally, I've always been a fan of the idea of Dyson spheres. It's just, you know, obviously a very fantastical idea, but nonetheless, very stimulating. And I've always kind of my, my bearish thesis on the discovery of extraterrestrial life would kind of be, you know, if we take these Dyson spheres, harvest the energy of, you know, a sun, and then essentially have the computational capacity to run forms of simulation, we may not have the incentive to, you know, move as across mm -hmm. the universe in a way if we could, you know, have those needs net. And this assumes that you could upload consciousness to a computer. People like Roger Penrose would probably disagree of, with consciousness as being some form of computation. It's probably a, a discussion for another time. But yeah, I think you did a great job kind of articulating mm -hmm. that transition between different scales of blockchains. And I think uh, obviously, it's a good segue into your third piece, The Law of Hash Universality, Coin Astronomy, Part 3. And you write, proof-of-work blockchains such as Bitcoin are a universal adaptation among communicating technological civilizations. And you talk a bit about the Fermi Paradox. You mentioned, I, I'm probably going to mess this pronunciation up, but Sixin Lu, the Chinese science fiction author, their book, The Dark Forest. And then you also just talk about kind of why, you know, living organisms have used language to communicate with one another. And so I know that was a bit of a wide-ranging swath right there. But yeah, I would just be curious if you could unpack this idea of why you know, proof of work to, to your mind is this shelling point for money. And maybe we can 
kind of move from there into the language side of things. And there was a funny shelling point story that I feel like I want to tell, uh, but I suppose, suppose motivated better first. I think what started thinking about the issues of part three, mostly because it's super fascinating to think about aliens if you're a big space nerd. But another way to frame it is like how natural is Bitcoin as an invention, even for human beings? Like, is it a very conditional invention or is it a very like inevitable invention? There's really no correct way to answer this, I suppose. It's kind of a subjective question in some ways, but I might articulate that like, it feels like, let's say, what's a good example? Telescopes or something like that, right? Could be a pretty universal invention that you might expect human beings to make. Like eventually someone will see glass bending, they'll witness the phenomenon of magnification, they'll see how useful it is to magnify things in both microscopes and telescopes, an optical industry will get started. It's sort of an inevitable thing. And then there's sort of conditional inventions like, you know, someone writes a very particular song, that song doesn't necessarily need to exist. It, you can imagine alternative history where that song did not exist, but everything was pretty much the same otherwise. Um, where it's hard to imagine a modern human society that never figured out optics. These aren't the best analogies, but when you use them in the context of SETI, I think what you're really talking about is, well, what kinds of developments would we expect to be universal amongst communicating technological civilizations in the Milky Way, let's say. So in this case, it's much more reasonable to assume that they probably have telescopes, because if they don't have telescopes and they don't know about space and they don't know that aliens like us might exist, why are they looking for our signals? Why are they communicating with us? Maybe they're doing so inadvertently in the sense of there are some chemical signals in our atmosphere that we are detecting, but then by definition, they're just life. They're not communicating civilizations. They're not necessarily the kinds of things that SETI is essentially looking for, right? Where they're searching for intelligence, not just life. And I think we have a bias that believes that intelligence is a civilization. And to me, I think about Bitcoin and I try to ask myself that question. Like if we found aliens, like would they have discovered Bitcoin? Like is Bitcoin a kind of foundational important technology that species discover like fusion or optics or computing or whatever, or semiconductors, or is it something that is conditional and we kind of invented it because it, we're weird and not every species would. And then I kind of think about, well, what is really Bitcoin? What is money? Where's money come from? And essentially I make the argument that if there's a civilization that is capable of having discourse with us through a remote signal. If we can talk using words and other concepts like through space, then that civilization probably has something like a society in which individuals need to communicate ideas. That society has problems that it must find consensus around regarding supply chain and demand issues like they have an economy. Money is an extremely useful tool in economies and among social species. Nick Zabo has written quite a degree about money as a evolutionary fit characteristic that uh, social societies should develop. So in this sense, I think that money is a very universal concept for our putative aliens that might be communicating with us. And then if we can posit that they have money and they're also capable of building transmitters with electronics and radios and so on, they probably have computers. They probably invent an internet. At this point, you're starting uh, do they have cryptography? Well, probably they keep secrets, right? They're a society of individuals, presumably with different wants and needs. That's why they have an economy. So if they have an economy, they keep secrets. If they have computers and math, they figured out cryptography. You can poke holes in a lot of this reasoning and argue that any one of these steps is unlikely to occur for various reasons. That's fine. In my view, this package of a society that like us has computers and money is not hard to believe in especially if we're preconditioning on societies that aren't just giant slime molds or pre-technology. These are communicating technological civilizations we're supposedly characterizing. I find it pretty reasonable that they develop Bitcoin because I think Bitcoin has some, it's sort of inevitable once you have a set of problems and a set of solutions. And I think that's what happened here on Earth. I think Satoshi was remarkable, but not in that, but not singular. Someone else would have had those ideas and put them together eventually. They were in the ether. And I think that will happen to alien societies. And so like us, they will have a period of hyper-Bitcoinization. And then I started to think, okay, well, if this starts to happen to, if this is something that all societies experience, well, does that have any implications for SETI or communication between societies at scale? It's asking, well, if all societies that are capable of technological communication have developed concepts of language or lasers or binary encoding or other kinds of related concepts, if they, if we can assume that all those societies that are capable of technological communication in space also have Bitcoin, I suddenly started to think, well, Bitcoin might be more than just a shared money that most technological societies develop. Maybe Bitcoin is actually an integral part of the 
fabric that societies use to talk to each other when they first make contact. And here by Bitcoin, I don't mean Bitcoin as we know it here on earth. I mean, whatever the alien equivalent of Bitcoin or Musk coin or Sol coin indeed they're using. Some blockchain that's based on proof of work and relies on the same space, time, energy principles that Bitcoin does. And this became really interesting and fruitful speculation for me because I came to the conclusion that in many ways, sending somebody like your blockchain of your species, of your civilization, like the biggest one that you have, is probably the best message you could send. Um, and then I go through a bunch of reasons why I believe that's the case. And then I ultimately kind of conclude with, well, now that we have a blockchain of our own, we should join the conversation and send this blockchain out to other stars. Like we should transmit the Bitcoin blockchain to other star systems that we believe may hold life based on our best understanding of them from other astronomical data. And that potentially part of the current Fermi paradox that we experience, this current tension between how many stars and opportunities life has had to exist in the galaxy and yet how few technological signals that we see might just be because potentially the galaxy is teeming with life in some ways and no one's transmitting to us because we haven't shown anybody that we're worth talking to. We might not even have a blockchain, which makes us uninteresting. So there's just a bunch of interesting ideas and we could explore if you like some of those assertions around why Bitcoin or like blockchains are a good message for one alien to send another. But that's kind of the overall summary of part three. Yeah, wow. I mean, incredibly well articulated and certainly stimulating to think about. And one thing that really caught my eye in your piece was you're just talking about, you know, we could potentially be living within these, I think you call them like Nakamoto networks or networks of aliens beaming their blockchains across, you know, interstellar space and may not even know it yet, which is just a really fascinating idea just to think, you know, what, what could be out there lurking in this dark forest that we don't know about? It, it is also very interesting to think about. You can understand how much energy a civilization is harnessing based upon, you know, their block time and how much cumulative work has gone into each of those networks. And you talk about this idea of like cosmic sociology and it, it's like almost a form of like archaeology, like looking at the past of these civilizations. And I just found that to be like incredibly mind-blowing, first of all, and maybe a way of signaling to people who we don't necessarily share a language with as to show them, you know, we can prove that we are, you know, developed to X degree, you know, on the Kardashev scale. And so I thought that was just absolutely fascinating. And yeah, I guess overall, do you, it sounds like you believe life would likely be common given that it, you know, maximizes entropy production. But is that your stance? Do you believe that there are other intelligent civilizations out there? Do you think, you know, if not, are they likely to form? Uh, like, what, where do you fall on that spectrum? <laughs> it's a really good question. I think my short answer is I think life is common, but intelligence may be rare. It may also be common. I don't know. I think to your observation that I write, we could be, you know, contained in a very busy communications network of, of a large interstellar civilization and not realize it. I don't think I'm unique in making that assertion. I think most astronomers would agree. If the communication network is asynchronous, peer-to-peer -peer based, and ephemeral, in, by the way, all characteristics that a blockchain-like application like Bitcoin is designed to deal well with, those are exactly the characteristics that Bitcoin was designed to be robust against. It's possible that we're part of such a network of aliens about completely non-Bitcoin things, of course, right? Like, we just don't have the budget that we should have in order to monitor all of space for these kinds of signals. We don't know that they're not there. It doesn't mean that they are there, but it's hard for us. I think part of the, honestly, the simplest solution of the Fermi paradox is we've only spent this much money on looking. And it's hard to search for signals in space. We have to be vigilant. They're unlikely, in my view, to be giant, always on beacons that we can just point and, oh, there it is, I see it. They're more likely to be flashes and short duration um, ways of transmitting information, which means unless we're looking all the time, we're not going to see these things. That's very expensive. We just haven't paid that expense and that's why we haven't seen them. So I think the observation that they're out there is one that is completely reasonable to run with and certainly to speculate on. And I think some of the stuff that you talked about around energy usage and proving where you sit on the Kardashev scale, these are part of the reasons why ultimately I think Bitcoin-like blockchains are great candidates for the content of an extraterrestrial message. I'm not making any claims around what frequency the message would be at. You know, people talk about the water, the cosmic watering hole and other kinds of concepts like that. I don't know how the message would be encoded. I don't know what, what binary or ternary logical structure, you know, aliens would use to represent data in such messages. I don't know about encryption or decompression or redundancy. These are all protocol level issues. But on some level, I think the semantics of that message, it shouldn't say hello. Like, 
<laughs> it shouldn't say, here's the secret of life. Here's how you build warp travel. Those are fun things in a science fiction novel. But I think if it's a practical attempt from one civilization to talk to another, sending your Bitcoin-like blockchain is a really good first choice. And the reasons I articulate are the one that you describe, which is you can evaluate the structure of a Bitcoin blockchain in a way that is safer and potentially easier than some kind of arbitrary message. There's danger in evaluating arbitrary messages, especially if there's if they're computing or complex or there's any kind of automation in there. Like there's a wonderful opportunity here for a great story about a rogue AI that's transmitted through, you know, a SETI message. So arbitrary comp computations and software are dangerous for us, but Bitcoin like blockchains are purposefully constrained. Again, this is the power of constraints. They're purposely constrained to not be Turing complete machines. This gives us a lot of confidence in quote unquote running code or data or that we or interpreting that data that we see from you know a completely untrusted and potentially malevolent source like a putative species at another star. And then moreover, if we can interpret the data as a Bitcoin blockchain, which why would we do that? Well, partly because of the third law that I postulate in this article that, well, if we already believe that all species probably have Bitcoin, then maybe all species have their equivalent of this article and they've intuited that the best thing to send is this, it's a showing point, right? It's the thing that we all choose without prior communication. And the reason that makes sense is again, it's safe to parse, it's structured. And then the point that you're making is if we can estimate like the difficulty of the equivalent to the hashing algorithm, essentially if we can estimate the, the proof of work, we can weigh it in some way using our own computing technology or what we hypothesize the other species has, it gives us a way to estimate how much energy their civilization uses and not just estimate it in the sense that astronomers are typically used to doing, which is, you know, look at like the absolute magnitude of some star and estimate how much energy is coming out of it. Like that, this is a more like a signature of how much energy that they use. And, and it's interesting because the word signature is often used by astronomers to talk about concepts like techno signature, like just receiving a narrow bandwidth, high power signal that had clear binary structure to it would be sign of intelligent life on some level, like to an astronomer. If that was a replicable signal that everyone could agree was received, the semantics of that message don't matter because at this point we already know aliens exist and they have a transmitter. But the question of what is in that message is super interesting. And I think my assertion is it's something like Bitcoin and it's their history of their civilization. It shows us how much energy they're using. It helps us orient like who are we and who are they in this conversation between species. And I think a super interesting connection that I discovered is this phrase lingua franca, like a trade language, like uh, a sort of pig, uh, pig and, pig, pigeon kind of language that's like, um, when two cultures meet, they have to construct a way of talking. That meeting is usually around trade. And so there's these trade languages that human beings, when cultures first connect, that they sort of have to create. Point is kind of like that. It's a trade language that you can use to try to understand where does your partner in this conversation sit on the energy scale of civilizations? Like how old is their civilization? How broad, how large? Bitcoin right now tells you something about our computing technology and our civilization if you were to detect it at a neighboring star. So I think that's a really powerful reason to send this. There's also the fun conceit that Ultimately, especially considering part two, if this coin that we're talking about here, this alien blockchain is of sufficiently large block time that it could include our star system in its mining, potentially this message is also an invitation, right? It's a way to say, start joining our civilization, start mining this coin, start relaying transactions, extend the range of this money to further and further in the galaxy. And this is a super interesting way that civilizations, societies can join a sort of interstellar alien elder civilization without really even deeply understanding the language of the civilization, right? Because the structure of a Bitcoin like blockchain is pretty fixed and arguably natural. And once you understand that, okay, now you're just becoming a full node in their network, transmitting signals back and forth. You don't even need, you don't need to understand what the transactions mean. They don't mean anything. You're just a node relaying transactions according to a protocol. So it's a super interesting way for societies to kind of join before they have established a meaningful real communication channel that, that contains more semantically useful data. Wow, that, that was incredible. Thank you for sharing that. And the whole time I'm listening to that, I'm just thinking in my head, you know, you need to speak with Avi Loeb, who was a speaker at last year's Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. Avi got up on stage, talked about his search for extraterrestrial life and his work with Jim Simons, who is helping to fund that research. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely 
you know, love to hear a conversation between you two. I think that'd be awesome. I and mean, it's also just a good segue for me to tell everyone, if you want to hear more conversations like this, you know, get your ticket to Bitcoin 2023. We have a 21% off code clown economic forum running during Davos conference for the WEF. So you can get 21% off your Bitcoin 2023 tickets. Um, with that code. And Drew, I guess I just wanted to kind of leave you with the last word here. I know you mentioned some new writing that you're working on in RDMs, but I would just be really curious to hear if there's anything that's caught your attention lately and you know what the future might hold for your exploration of the space. Yeah, maybe I'll just react to your Avi comment. Like, I think actually through folks at Bitcoin Magazine, I was introduced to Avi Loeb, who I've been following for a while. Obviously, an amazing scientist, great communicator, willing to say and think things that are uncomfortable and out there, all requirements to be able to talk about Bitcoin in space, in my view. And so we've actually had a conversation or two about these ideas. I think he's broadly interested and supportive. He's someone that helped me realize that, that an important framing for any of this, at least as far as the traditional scientific establishment would be interested in a conversation around how Bitcoin impacts, let's say, setting would be a prediction on what is the semantic content of an extraterrestrial message. I think there have been a lot of predictions around what would be the form of that message, that it would be a laser signal at this frequency and it would be encoded like this. There's been lots of work on that. There's less work comparatively on what is a natural shelling point choice for, for what that uh, message should be? And maybe I can tell my shelling point story and then I'll get out of here. And if I'm remembering this correctly, this is, it's quite funny because it's one of those circular moments in science where science and science fiction and so on inspire each other, where it's, so I believe it's Thomas Schelling, whose work I have not read, I only know a little bit about him from this one paper, talks about the idea of a shelling point and he gives several examples of what a shelling point could be. And one he talks about, I believe, is something like meeting at Times Square or the Empire State Building in New York as sort of the most you know, prominent landmark. And so that's where naturally people would choose to meet if they couldn't previously communicate it. And he actually talks, interestingly enough, about money in space as a interesting example of the kind of problem that he's talking about, that how would two societies who've never communicated with before engage in trade and have that conversation. So he actually talks about like this as an, he doesn't, I don't think provide a solution, but he talks about that as an example of the kind of phenomena he's describing. I did not know that at all. And then I and many others, I think have talked about Bitcoin as a shelling point for space economics, if you like, without even realizing that the shelling himself like anticipated that usage. So it just goes to show how little we actually read. So fun little story that I only came to recently through the work of another astronomer, Jason Wright. But yeah, in terms of future work, I'm not thinking about space so much anymore. I think I really, really said what I needed to say in this long series of articles. I'm thinking a lot more these days about Bitcoin and layers and Bitcoin's impact on computer science and computer networking, computer security, maybe a little bit stuff that's a little bit closer to my actual work at Unchained. The space stuff, while exciting for some part of my colleagues at Unchained, is pretty unrelated to the, to our mainline business. As you know, we focus on collaborative custody and financial products. So it's a little bit more closer to home, the new stuff that I'm working on and about how Bitcoin has changed my own approach to building software, how I think it will change a lot of people's approach to building and composing software and potentially change a lot about what computing feels like and using the internet feels like over time. I think some projects like not, I don't know how to pronounce this necessarily, but Nostr, they can, you know, notes and other stuff through relays or whatever. These are great projects that really show how much Bitcoin can offer in these other sectors, right? Like just thinking about Bitcoin as a platform for telecommunications technology, super interesting stuff. And for me, like it does connect back to the Bitcoin astronomy long view because it helps support the thesis that hyper-Bitcoinization is a real phenomenon that's going to happen. Bitcoin is not just sound money. It's not just a distributed, the most distributed network. It's also a great foundation with which to build all sorts of other economic incentives. We're learning that with the Lightning Network. We're seeing that put into practice with these new applications. It's just a very exciting time. So I'm trying to plug into a lot of that excitement as well as stuff that's a little closer to home with Unchained in my new work. Wow, incredible. Well, Drew, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for joining us here on Cosmic Bitcoin. That was so much fun. And I really look forward to your writing that I'm sure you're working on at the moment and seeing what kind of work you get up to. If you have anything else you want to add, feel free. But with that, I give you the floor. Well, thank you so much, Spencer, and others for inviting me. CK, if you're not here, really appreciate the time, guys. And thanks for making space to talk about such wild, heady concepts. Keeps people excited and thinking about that long term. Yeah, anytime, man. Really appreciate it. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up.
magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Nayib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analyst Dylan LeClaire Dr. Jeff Ross and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.